and I thank you for all those that came out tonight to experience you, God, to encounter you through uh, the worship and teaching of your word, and we pray that that would happen tonight as we dive into this text. You'd enlighten the eyes of our understanding. You'd give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, God, we would pull things from this text that would change us from the inside out as we look at this uh, song that David sings. Lord, I pray it would pierce our hearts. So fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're getting towards the end of the life of David. Uh, we were in Second Samuel chapter 21 towards the end there, and the author begins to describe these battles that the Israelites had with the Philistines, specifically these battles with four Philistine giants. And we see that David, he grew weary in the battle. He was getting old. He was no longer the young buck that slayed Goliath. He's in his 60s or 70s. Uh, so he can't fight anymore. So his soldiers tell him, hey, you're, you're going to stay in Jerusalem. We don't want to quench the lamp of Israel. If you die, that's going to be very discouraging for us. You're our, our leader. You're the one that gives us the motivation to, to, to push on, to press on, to continue to fight forward. Yet we see these guys, despite the fact that David's no longer fit for battle, we see these men that were raised up who were given the ability to slay giants. See, God's favor wasn't just on his king. God's favor was on his people. And that was largely because of God's relationship with his king. Uh, David, though he was a flawed man, he had a man after, uh, he was a man after God's own heart and God blessed the nation of Israel because of David's general faithfulness to the Lord. But we also see that David was the type of man who invested into his leaders and he wanted to set Israel up for future victories long after his death. So we see these four men that are raised up that are given the same ability to slay giants just as David was. Now, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 22, and we're going to see David sing this song of deliverance. He's going to praise God for all the times that God has delivered him throughout his life. The title of this teaching, it's a two-part teaching, we're going to break the text up, uh, Song of Deliverance, that's what this is. So we'll get through the first half to verse 20 tonight, then we'll uh, finish it out next week. A song of deliverance. Sometimes we need to be reminded of all the things that God has delivered us from, all the obstacles, all the trials, all the sin, all the various issues and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And we need to be reminded of the fact that God has delivered us time and time again. Not only do we need to be reminded of it, but we also need to acknowledge it. God has given us victory in this life time and time again, and he's worthy to be praised for those various victories that he's given us. So we'll see here in 2 Samuel chapter 22, it actually coincides with Psalm 18. They're very similar, almost identical, but there are variations. Now, Psalm 18 is believed to be written early on in David's life when God delivered him from the hand of Saul. And he'll talk about there this in Psalm 22, uh, which has led some scholars to believe that this song in Psalm, uh, sorry, in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, 22, uh, they believe that David wrote this in his early years and the author just decided to put it, uh, 
later on in his life, later on at the end of Second Samuel. But it doesn't seem like that's actually the case because it doesn't really make sense. Uh, what is more than likely the case is that David wrote Psalm 18 earlier on in his life. And then he later on in his life, he's remembering all these things that God delivered him from. And so he sings the song again. Uh, but yet this time he makes some slight changes in the song based on how 2 Samuel is written, especially re, uh, leading up to 2 Samuel chapter 23, where we see it says David's final words, 2 Samuel 22 appears to be some of David's final words. So we're going to look at this song, perhaps one of the last songs that David sung, at least the last recorded song. And it says here in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David, it says, spoke to the Lord. This song was directly written to God. David was a man that had regular communication with Yahweh. He didn't just wait for God to speak to him. He initiated conversations with Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh was his best friend. God was David's best friend. That's how he looked at God. Yes, he's my savior. He's my king. He's my Lord, but he's my friend. He, he didn't praise Yahweh. He didn't pray to Yahweh out of obligation. He spoke to Yahweh out of a sincere desire. He, he wanted to spend time with God. Are you the person that's known for your regular communication with God? Uh, are you the person that people go, man, that person loves the Lord. That person is a friend of God. They just talk about God constantly and they talk to God constantly. All their life is really set out to glorify God and praise his name because that's what we see in the person of David. It's commendable. It's something that we should learn from. We should be people who communicate with God, who praise God, who seek God on a regular basis, just as David did. And we see, he spoke to the Lord, this song, it says, on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So he's praising God for deliverance. This is point number one. Praise God for deliverance. Praise God for deliverance. This word delivered or deliverance is... The Hebrew word Nisai, it means to pull out, to be saved, or to be secure. And we see all these different meanings of this word apply to this song. David considered, and we'll see him consider, all the times that God had delivered him. Consider, I want you to, as we continue to dive into this text, I want you to, to really be thinking personally, to take this home in your heart. And consider all the times in your life that God has delivered you from various situations. Think about the time when God initially delivered you. When you were helpless, when you were hopeless, when you really had nowhere else to turn. Ezekiel references this state in Ezekiel chapter 16. In Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 4, it says, God speaking specifically to Israel, but it applies to all of us. It says, as for your nativity, on the day 
You were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field. Then you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. See, the world left us out to dry. The world chewed us up and spat us out. The world abandoned us. And I don't know how that happened for you. I know how it happened for me, regardless of how it happened. The truth is there came a point in each and every one of our lives where we were hopeless and helpless and God came through and God delivered us. And we should praise God for that deliverance when no one else wanted us, when we had nowhere else to turn. We were able to turn to God and God showed up, but God didn't just deliver us once. He continues to deliver us. I wish we were aware of all the times that God delivered us. I'm convinced that when we get to heaven sometime, we're going to be aware. We're going to we're going to know as we are known, we're going to have this abundance of knowledge and awareness. And I think we'll be able to look back on our lives and and look back at all the times that God delivered us, specifically situations that we weren't even aware of relationships that he was protecting us from jobs that he was protecting us from situations that he was protecting us from, people he was protecting us from, places he was protecting us from. God is delivering us even when we don't see it. So David, he praises God because God has been so faithful to deliver him time and time again. Just as he who has been forgiven much loves much, he who has been delivered much praises much. And that's the person David was because he recognized how often God had been had delivered him. He praises God constantly. That's why we have the Psalms. That's why we have this song. In Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He says, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He doesn't say a rock, a fortress, a deliverer. He makes it personal. He's not claiming these titles of God from a theological standpoint. He's claiming these titles of God from a personal standpoint, from an experiential standpoint. See, we should praise God because he's our God. He's our personal God. David speaks from this place of personal experience that God is not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and Joseph. He's not just the God of the patriarchs. He's not just the God of my father. He's my God. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. This whole song or song is based on David's personal experience with experiences with God watching God show up in his life is the God of the Bible your personal God 
Have you experienced him? And I believe you all have or you wouldn't be here. But do you continue to experience him in your life day in and day out? Because this is what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to just fall into a religious routine. He wants us to experience him on a daily basis. He invites us into have experiences with him. David had these experiences time and time again. God delivered him time and time again. He delivered him from Goliath. He delivered him from his sin. He delivered him from uh, from from adultery and murder and backsliding. He delivered him from Abner and Absalom. He delivered him from Saul. He delivered him from the Philistines. He delivered him so many times on so many separate occasions. And I want us to really consider as we go about this text and the rest of our night to think about all the times that God has delivered us. And when we get the chance to praise him for the deliverance that we've experienced in our life, because he doesn't owe us deliverance. It's by his grace that he delivers us. So he says, the Lord, my rock, when everything in this world is changing, when everything in this world is unstable, David says, my God is the rock. My God is stable. Why? Because he's unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8 says that, that God, Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. He doesn't change. The same God who rescued you when you were helpless and hopeless, when you were abandoned by whoever, abandoned by the world, is the same God that wants to deliver you today. It's the same God that wants to rescue you today from whatever you're going through. He's the same. He hasn't changed. Sometimes we change, but God, He doesn't change. Sometimes our circumstances change, but God, He doesn't change. Not only is He our rock in the sense that He's unchanging, He's stable. He's also our provider. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul gives us this amazing revelation speaking of the children of Israel and the water that God provided through that rock. He tells us that Jesus was that rock. Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. Jesus is our provider. He provides for us in difficult situations. He shows up for us time and time again. He gives us every single thing that we need. Not always everything that we want, but he gives us everything that we need. God provided for David. But he's also being the rock. He's our foundation. And being our foundation, we're called, we're charged by Jesus Christ himself. To continue to build our foundation on the rock, which is Christ. How do we do this? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fail, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. If we're just hearing the word of God and not doing the word of God, Jesus says we're, we're building our house on the sand. And guess what? We're building our house on the sand. The world's going to wipe us away. 
We're going to get washed away. We're not going to be able to stand in trials. But if we build our foundation on the rock, if we hear the word and we do something with the word, we'll stand when the world falls around us. This is what Jesus is telling us because the world that we live in isn't going to last forever. It's temporary. It's all going to go up in a vapor at some point in time. But those who build their house on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, by hearing and doing the word, we will stand when the world falls around us. He says, my rock. And he says, my fortress. This word fortress, it means mountain stronghold. You think about a fortress. David saying, God is my fortress. He's my protection. Nothing can touch me when I'm in the hands of God. Why? Because God is for me. In Romans 8.31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Why? Because He's our fortress. He provides stability. He provides protection he provides security but that security exists through a relationship with him and david he had that relationship then he refers to him as his deliverer god had delivered david from so many things god delivered him from sin specifically in this context from his enemies god too will deliver us from sin he'll deliver us from our enemies. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 23. The God of my strength in whom I will sh- will trust. He says, my, my strength is in the Lord. God is my strength. And how do we find God's strength? Well, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians 12 that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. In order to find God's strength, I got to admit my weakness. David knew he was weak he he knew he wasn't strong in and of himself he knew he had to rely on the lord's strength and he did that the god of my strength in whom i will trust why would david trust god because god proved himself trustworthy god proved himself faithful god came through time and time again we can trust him wholeheartedly he proves himself faithful he won't let us down People will fail us. Inevitably. People will fail us. Sometimes the closest people in our lives will fail us. But the Bible charges us to not trust in man, but to trust in God because God will never fail us. It's in Jeremiah chapter 17. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says in verse 5, He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse seven, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought 
nor will cease from yielding fruit. Hey, don't get caught up in putting too much trust in man. Men will fail you. Women will fail you. Our spouses will fail us. Our best friends will fail us. Our parents will fail us. Our kids will fail us. Everybody in this world at some point is going to fail us. He says, put your trust in God. And even when you go through difficult circumstances, he says, here in verse 8, he says, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought. We can go through drought. We can go through difficulty. Uh, we can go through seasons of trials of any type. And if we're putting our trust in the Lord, guess what happens? He says, nor will cease from yielding fruit. We'll, we'll actually produce fruit even in those seasons of drought if our trust is in the Lord. But our faith has to be in God. Regardless of our circumstances, David, his faith was unwavering no matter what he was going through. Now, he didn't always make the right decisions, but a lot of times he did. And we see throughout his lifestyle, uh, throughout his life, he had this general faith in Yahweh. And there were times where he didn't seem to have a lot of faith in Yahweh. But generally speaking, he did. And David, he produced much fruit. Because in order for us to produce fruit, we got to have faith. We got to put our trust in the Holy One. So David did, just as he says here, in whom I will trust. Second Samuel chapter 22, continuing on in verse 3, he says, My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you saved me from violence. He says, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 points to the shield of faith. Faith protects us. Faith actually protects us from opposition in this world. That's what David experienced. You're my shield. The faith that I have in you is like a shield that protects me from attacks from the enemy, that protects me from temptation, that protects me of all types of opposition. Then he refers to him as the horn of my salvation. Horn. It's symbolic of power or strength throughout the Bible. He's saying, God alone has power to save me. Then he refers to him as my Savior. God alone has power to save. In Isaiah 43, verse 11, God says, I even I am the Lord, Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. So, so God says, I alone can save you. If you're seeking salvation in any other thing, if you're seeking salvation in your retirement plan, if you're seeking salvation in your career path, if you're seeking salvation in some relationship, if you're seeking salvation in any other thing but Yahweh, then that salvation is going to disappoint because nothing else saves but Yahweh. This is a great verse, by the way, to use against Jehovah's Witnesses, because it says that Yahweh alone is Savior. But they'll say Jesus Christ is their Savior. So I've always pointed them to this one. And I go, wait a minute, but it says only Yahweh, Jehovah, is Savior. So what does that mean? If Jesus Christ is your Savior, then Yahweh must be lying. Or Jehovah is Jesus, and Jesus is Yahweh. The point is, God says, I'm the only one that can save you. David recognizes that salvation 
is exclusively offered by Yahweh through the work of Jesus Christ. So we continue 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 4. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemy. He says Yahweh alone. I will call upon the Lord who is to be praised. God alone is worthy to be praised. But do we take the time to praise Him? Do do we take time out of our day to acknowledge Him? To to praise Him for His wondrous works? To praise Him for all the times that He's delivered us? I'm not just talking about coming to God in prayer and asking for things. Do we ever just come to God with a thankful heart with praise and go, man, God, when I consider all the things that you've done for me in my past, I recognize I don't really need anything else. Just taking that time out of our day and going, God, I'm just going to take this time to praise you. As I was studying this passage and considering this, I was challenged to, man, uh, every time I come to God, I'm almost always asking for something. And it's not bad to ask for stuff, as we'll get into later in this text. But sometimes it's good to just come before the Lord and praise Him for the things that He's already done with no expectation that He's got to do anything else in the future to be worthy to be praised. He already is worthy to be praised. He's earned our praise. And we should sacrifice out of uh, time out of our day to give Him the praise that He deserves. Second Samuel 22 Verse 5, when the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. David admits, being the mighty warrior that he was, there were times in his life where he was overwhelmed with his circumstances. And we can get it, you know, you got Saul throwing spears at you, hunting you down, then no more Saul, and now you got Abner, and then no more Abner, and now you got Absalom, and no more Absalom, and now you got this big Philistine giant over you ready to kill you. There were, David was put in situations time and time again where he was overwhelmed. He admits that I felt like I was drowning in my circumstances. Uh, uh, my circumstances were so overwhelming. I, I, I was drowning. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Like your circumstances were so overwhelming that you felt like you were drowning. David talks about this later on in Psalm 42, uh, verse 7. He says, deep calls unto deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. He's painting a picture. Think about being in the middle of an ocean with no boat or no land inside. And now you're in a storm and these waves are just piling over you one after another. How would you feel in that moment? Helpless, right? Hopeless, overwhelmed. The the waves of God, because God brought these circumstances into my life, they're over, they're overwhelming me. I have nothing else to put my faith in because I see nothing else to put my faith in. The only person that can bail me out of this situation is God and God alone. But God, he put David in the situation or many situations like this. And he puts us in situations like this as well. Why? Because he wants to bring us to that place of dependence, that there is no life raft. There, there is no boat. There is no dinghy. There is no helicopter coming to save you. There is no land that you can swim to. You have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to look. But God, he puts us in that situation for that specific purpose so that we understand and believe that he alone can save us. You guys see that 
uh, unbroken, the second one, it came out, and it's more like, uh, you know, it's more Christian-focused. Um, but there's a scene in there, like, similar to the first one. I forget out what he says in the first one. Um, but he's in a life raft, and it was reminding me of this, is why I'm mentioning it. Uh, he was in this life raft, um, and, uh, and, you know, he has no food, he has no nothing, there's no land in sight. Like, he's hopeless, he's helpless, and he cries out to God. He says, God, if you save me from this, I will serve you for the rest of my life. <laughs> if you save me from this situation, I will serve you for the rest of my life. Well, in the movie, he battles with that for a while eventually, not to ruin it for you. He ends up serving the Lord. Uh, but God, he puts us in these situations where the waves and billows are overwhelming us or overcoming us so that we learn to depend on him and him alone so david he says here second samuel chapter 22 verse 6 the sorrows of sheol surrounded me the snares of death confronted me now he mentions sheol sheol was the general holding place for the dead We'll see in the New Testament in Luke 16, you actually had two places. Um, you had a place of torment uh, and you had what was referred to as Abraham's bosom. Uh, this place of comfort that the saints of old actually dwelt there, not actually in heaven yet. They dwelt uh, in Abraham's bosom, which is also referred to as paradise, like they're doing good there, um, until Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that's why uh, it says that he, he set the captives free. Not only did he deliver people from sin, uh, but in Ephesians, it says he de- descended uh, into the earth and he set the captives free, uh, pointing to those likely uh, who were held in Abraham's bosom. So he refers to as uh, he, he talks about Sheol. He's not saying that um, he's scared of going to hell. Okay, um, That's not what he's referring to here. Uh, but we see David was put in situations where he thought that he might die. He says, the snares of death confronted me. He faced death on numerous occasions. God allowed that to happen. Why? Sometimes when we got get brought to that place where we're close to death, where we almost die, we cry out to God. We recognize once again that He alone can save us. He uses near-death experiences in our life to get our attention. That's what He did with David. And He felt it. He thought He was going to die. In verse 7, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple and my cry entered His ears. Point number two, God hears our cries for deliverance. God hears our cries for deliverance. He said, when I was in that situation, all the waves and billows overflowing me, the waves of death surrounded me. I was faced with the snares of death. Snares of death confronted me. I cried out to God and he heard me. When we cry out to our heavenly father in the midst of distress, he hears us. The enemy sometimes tries to persuade us that, hey, 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 you got yourself into this bind or, or this pit is too deep. There's no sense crying out to God. God cannot save you. God cannot help you from your present circumstances. That's a lie from the pits of hell. God hears our cries when we cry out to him in trying circumstances for deliverance. We see this with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, he says, And the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. He hears us and he knows what we're going through. He's not ignorant to it. He sees, he hears. Sometimes it's like, man, I keep crying out for deliverance for this specific thing. And it's like God hasn't showed up. He hasn't delivered us. If he doesn't deliver us right away, it doesn't mean that we're wasting our breath by crying out. The Israelites were crying out for like 400 years while they were in slavery. Finally, 400 years later, God comes and he delivers them. Regardless how long it takes for deliverance to come, God wants us to cry out to him. You never know. When God's finally going to show up and deliver you from that thing that you've been pleading with him to deliver you from. There was a guy in Colombia. Uh, we were out evangelizing and we walked up and this guy was like reading a little book. It looked like a Bible. Sure enough, what? So we started talking to him. And I'm asking him, hey, what are you reading? And he's reading the Psalms. And I was like, what's been standing out to you lately? Uh, and he's like, Psalm 61. Um, and it's about crying out to the Lord. And I said, so what have you been crying out to God about? What have you been asking him about? And he says, man, my financial situation, my business, it's just not doing very well. Um, and I'm just asking God to to help uh, make ends meet. And, uh, and then we were able to purchase some of his goods because uh, I was thinking you know in God's sovereignty he put us in this situation so it just got me thinking I believe it was from the Lord like ask this guy what he's praying about because maybe God wants to use you to answer his prayer and, and sure enough that's what the Lord put on my heart and so we help provide for this guy a little bit by the grace of God the point is this guy he recognized and believed if I cry out to the Lord to take care of my needs to deliver me from whatever circumstance I am I'm in Uh, He's going to show up. God showed up for that man. He'll show up for us. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also. And came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him. Dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. Yahweh both hears and comes, and when He comes, it's like Mount Sinai all over again. This is the picture that David is painting, that God showed up visibly. Whether He did or not, 
It doesn't really matter according to the text. He's writing in a poetic form. But we see some connections between what David is saying here and how God showed up to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Let me show you. It's Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19. Almost there. We see verse 16, it says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded uh, long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Sometimes God answers us in very obvious ways. See, David, what he's pointing at, he's not just telling us some theological fact about Yahweh and how he answers prayers. He he wants us to see Yahweh, to envision Yahweh in all his saving splendor. This is how God has showed up in my life. It was so clear to him. God showed up in a very visible, tangible, audible way. And there are times in life where God wants to do that for us. He wants to show up in our lives in very visible, tangible, audible ways, in very obvious ways. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God shows up in in very evident ways. So about a month after I got saved, so right after I got saved, actually, I was praying these two prayers. Some of you heard me tell tell this story before. It's probably been a while, though. Um, so there's these two prayers that I was praying every single day from the day that I got saved. Okay. I didn't understand everything, but I knew Jesus was real and I knew he saved me. I knew he delivered me and I knew he changed me in that moment. And so the first prayer I was asking God, I said, God, I know, and I'm confident that now I'm going to heaven. But if I could pick one person to go there with me at this point, I'd want it to be my brother. I want my brother to be there with me. I was very close with my brother, and he had a lot of similar struggles as me. And I was like, God, save my brother. Please save my brother. And the other prayer, I struggled with the creation account because I grew up in the public school system. My dad was a scientist, evolution, Big Bang Theory, all these different things. That's what I learned. Uh, I was into this stuff. I like to study it. I like to learn about it. So I struggled with the creation account. So I said, God, okay, I'll, I'll give you theory. Okay, I'll give you theory. But what about the facts? Help me understand how the creation account coincides with science. Where do these two things meet? Okay, I'll give you theory. Okay, if it can't be proven, it can't be proven. But what about the facts? So I pray to God every day, God, save my brother and give me understanding about where the creation account meets science every day for a month, not day one, not day two, not week one, not day, week two. So about a month later on a Wednesday night, my brother randomly shows up to service. Pastor Bob does an altar call. My brother looks at me. I'm kind of like looking at him and he's like, 
dude, I'm not going up. I'm like, dude, that's fine, bro. That's between you and God. I'm not pushing you to go up. And he asked me, did you go up? I'm like, yeah, you, I went up. Cause he could tell that things changed my life already just by talking to me. And, and then he like wrestled in his chair for a bit. And then he got up and he went up and he accepted the Lord. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, God just answered the biggest prayer that I've been praying this whole time. I thought he was not getting saved, but God, he intervened and he did something in his heart. Tyler got saved. This is a Wednesday night. The very next night, this was Thursday night, random guy, barely knew, only had a couple conversations with him. He walked up to me when I was in my dorm, sitting on my bed. And he said, dude, I don't know why, but God told me to give this to you. And he hands me, I'll never forget it as a week three, um, uh, Ravi Zacharias School of Apologetics curriculum. The whole entire topic was about the creation account, Genesis 1, where science and the biblical account meet. There's no way that dude knew that this is what I was praying about. I just started weeping. I started weeping. I'm like, oh my gosh, God is so real. Like I knew he saved me, but he just showed up in such a tangible way. And it was in his perfect timing. My two biggest prayers answered back to back. Well, that very next night, Wednesday, Tyler gets saved. Thursday, God answers my second biggest prayer, giving me understanding that I knew there were answers to these difficult questions. Then Friday, they would do this once every four months, perfectly orchestrated by God. They would do these nights of worship. So like two, three hours, just worship worship and i went to that worship service and i wept like i never wept in my life the whole time because god became so real and i knew he spoke to me hey i'm going to answer your prayers according to my will and my perfect timing and your response to my deliverance your response to my faithfulness is that you're going to worship me and it changed my life forever that was the moment. It wasn't just getting saved. That was the moment that really catapulted me to ministry. At that point, I said, not only am I going to you know, try to do this Christian thing, I, I want to be the most faithful servant I can possibly be. And from that point forward, when God showed up in this tangible way, it changed everything for me. So that's what David's talking about. God showed up in a very real way in his life, and he's given some words to it to describe how he took these experiences. But God, he wants to give us these experiences where he shows up in these tangible, audible, visible ways. Now, God doesn't always show up in these obvious ways. Sometimes he shows up in very subtle ways. We see in 1 Kings chapter 19, God speaking to Elijah. And Elijah has these experiences uh, an earthquake and fire and thunder and all these different uh, loud experiences. And he keeps saying God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the thunder. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then we hear the still small voice as God was in the still small voice. See, sometimes God wants to show up in obvious ways and sometimes he wants to show up in unobvious ways. And How do we discern the difference? We got to tune in to his voice. We, we got to be ready and expectant. First of all, that God hears my prayers and He wants to answer them. Second of all, purposing to tune in to observe and be aware of how is He answering this prayer in my life right now. Is it in the obvious way? Or is it in the subtle way? So David, this specific prayer, was answered in a very obvious way. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 15. He sent out arrows and scattered them. 
lightning, lightning bolts and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered and the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. The foundations of the world were uncovered, he says, at the rebuke of the Lord. The whole earth, he says, responds to the voice of the Lord. We see this in the life of Jesus as well. In Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus he gets on a boat with the disciples. and He falls asleep at the stern of the boat and he leads the disciples into this massive storm. It was so hectic that the disciples actually thought they were drowning. And they say, Lord, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, he wakes up and he rebukes. It says he rebukes the winds and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And what do those winds and waves do in that moment? They listened. They responded in obedience. It's amazing how the whole world, all creation responds in obedience, in immediate obedience to the Lord's voice. And yet man, in all his pride, is stubborn and often hesitates to respond to the voice of the voice of God. Sometimes we don't even respond at all to the voice of the Lord or we shrug his voice off as if he didn't say anything at all. Imagine if creation responded the same way man responded. Imagine if the sun responded the same way we sometimes respond to the voice of the Lord. If the sun decided one day, I don't feel like rising. I don't feel like getting up. We'd all be in serious trouble. You have these magnificent things that God created. They're immediately obedient to the voice of the Lord. And for some reason, it's really our pride. We think, ah, do we really have to listen to what God says? He says the whole world, the foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, the whole world, all creation, the whole universe responds without hesitancy to the voice of God. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 17. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He says that the Lord drew him out of many waters. It doesn't matter how deep of a situation we find ourselves in, God is faithful and able to deliver us from difficult situations. This is point number three. God delivers us from difficult situations. God delivers us from difficult situations. It's Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, verse 1. David speaking again, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also so brought me up. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon the rock and established my steps. Just when we think that the pit is too deep, just when we think that we're in a situation that's too difficult, just when think that all is lost just when we're at the very end of our rope, the very end of ourselves. That moment is often the moment that God shows up. David is crying out. He's in this horrible pit in the miry clay. And God, he pulls him out, sets his feet upon the rock. 
Maybe some of you are in that miry pit right now. Maybe some of you are in a situation that you don't see yourself getting out of. It's so difficult. It's so trying that you say, man, 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 there's no way out of this situation. Uh, I've dug myself too deep or the hole that I happened to fall in was just too deep. It's it's unbearable. There's no deliverance from this particular situation. Need I remind you, God's hand isn't too short. It's not too weak. God is able to get us out of even the deepest pits that we find ourselves in. Whether circumstances brought us into that pit or we brought ourselves into that pit, sometimes we just got to cry out and reach up to the Lord and He's faithful to reach back down and pull us out of the pit just as He did with David. Set our feet back on the rock. Show us the way Get us back in the place where we need to be. David experienced this. God drew him out of the waters. He said in Second Samuel, he says in Second Samuel chapter twenty two, verse eighteen, He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. God doesn't just deliver us from difficult situations. He also, just as we see here, He delivers us from the enemy. This is point number four. God delivers us from the enemy. God delivers us from the enemy. Now, this is interesting. Part of this is quoted in Luke's Gospel in the first chapter, speaking specifically about John the Baptist, he says here, it's a cool little connection, Luke chapter 1, verse 69, it says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, this prophecy is specifically concerning John the Baptist and him preparing the coming of the Lord. This was all pointing to the salvation that would be brought by Jesus Christ. And we see that our deliverance from the enemy ultimately comes from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus claimed the victory for us on the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, it says that Jesus made a public spectacle of a public spectacle of the enemy. He triumphed over him. By being nailed to the cross. Through Jesus Christ, we're victorious over the enemy. He offers us eternal deliverance, eternal victory through the gospel. However, in this life, we still have to face occasional or sometimes constant attacks from the enemy. God doesn't just promise eternal, promise us eternal deliverance. He promises us deliverance in this life. But sometimes we're going through it. We're getting attacked one round after another. And we wonder, when's God going to show up? 
I'm crying out for deliverance. He promises to deliver me from my enemy. But when's it going to happen? Let me show you. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel went through a similar trial. In Daniel chapter 10, sorry. In Daniel chapter 10. So he's on the Daniel fast again. And he's struggling to say the least. And he says here in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, speaking of this angel that came to him. He says, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, from for the first, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. So Daniel had been praying and praying and crying out to God for understanding and deliverance and all these different things. This angel comes to him. There's debate about who this is, whether it's a Christophany or Gabriel. That's for another another teaching. But the angel says, hey, God's heard you and and I've come because of your prayers. But there's spiritual warfare going on. And and this spiritual warfare, in a way, has hindered this prayer from being answered. And, And we don't really understand how that works in the heavenlies. We just see indication of it in Daniel chapter 10. But what we do see is that God was eventually faithful to show up in Daniel's life just as he was faithful to show up in David's life. And, and it, was always, it wasn't always immediate. Sometimes it took time. See, maybe you've been going through some spiritual warfare and it seems like it's been going on for far too long. But let me encourage you with something. Victory might be right around the corner. So hold on tight. That's what David did. He didn't always feel like he was experiencing victory. He's not speaking from a place of being in the middle of a battle. He's speaking from a place of overcoming a battle. And now he looks back and go, wow, God finally did handle uh, hand and my enemies over to me. God finally did deliver me from these attacks. But it wasn't till later on that he was able to see the victory that God had for him. Lastly, this is where we'll close. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 19. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Fifth and final point. God delivers those who he delights in. God delivers those who he delights in. David makes it clear. God delivered me because he delights in me. Now, who does God delight in? God delights in those who delight in him. Bottom line, God delights in those who delight in him. In Psalm 37, verse 4, Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Everybody likes to say, God will give you the desires of your heart. That's the second part of it. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Why? When we delight ourselves in the Lord, then my heart becomes his heart, and my desires become his desires. He shapes my heart, he conforms my heart, he changes my heart, so that my heart's lining up with his heart. And now as I delight myself with the Lord, 
Yeah, he gives me the desires of my heart because our heart are on the same page, at least in part. Delight yourself in the Lord. God's searching, he's seeking for those who delight in him. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says that God is searching the earth to and fro. He's looking down, seeking for those who will be faithful on his behalf. He's seeking for the faithful, or in other words, he's seeking for those who will delight in him. Do you delight in the Lord? Do you delight in the time that you spend with the Lord? Meaning, do you look forward to the time that you get to have with God? Do you look forward to the mornings, uh, waking up and and praying and and getting into the Word or however you do to your devotions? Maybe you incorporate worship into that as well. Do you look forward to coming to church? Do you get excited about these things? Because here's the reality. We can't fool them. We're not going to fool them. We can't just go through the motions and pretend that that means that we're delighting in Him. Going through the motions doesn't mean we delight in Him. God knows our hearts. And He's looking at our hearts. It's not about just going through the motions or the religious routine. It's about delighting in Him as we practice the spiritual disciplines. He desires so much to spend time with us. He wants to be in intimate fellowship with us. And He wants us to have that same desire. He delights in those who delight in Him. Not only that, He delivers those who delight in Him. Our pursuit of the Lord should be our delight. It should bring us great pleasure. And when we take great pleasure in pursuing the Lord, He takes great pleasure in delivering us. Yahweh is a God who desires to deliver His children. But He also desires His children to acknowledge Him as a deliverer. To, to acknowledge all the things that He's done in our life, how He's shown up uh, time and time again. That's the type of child that David was. He, he, was a, he was a son that praised God for all His goodness, that praised God for His deliverance. He didn't do this out of obligation. He didn't do this because someone had to tell Him to. He did this because He wanted to. God wants us to praise Him, just like David does. For all the wonderful things that he's done in our life. And I want us to to really consider that as we go about this night and the rest of our week. I want us to really meditate on, like get specific. Like, what has God delivered you from specifically? What what specific sins has he delivered you from? What specific circumstances or relationships? I don't know everything that God's delivered you from. I know the things that he's delivered me from. And I want you to think about those things. And then I, I want you to praise him for those things. Specifically, as David does, you delivered me from the mouth of the lion. And, and you, you delivered me from the bear. And you delivered me from Goliath. And you delivered me from, from Abner and Saul and Absalom. You delivered me from all these different things. And David's just thinking about looking back on his life and going wow man you've delivered me from so much but that gratefulness at least in part is rooted in considering what god has delivered us from when we don't consider it when we don't think about it when we don't meditate on it we tend to take it for granted but when we think about it when we really consider and think back man god's delivered me from so much it brings us to that state 
of thankfulness, which ultimately brings us to that state of praise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all that you've delivered us from, God. Everyone in this room, I know they have stories of of things that you've done in their lives and, and how you've shown up time and time again. And Lord, you're not done delivering us. There are things in the future that you're going to deliver us from. Uh, God, but I pray that as we discuss tonight, Lord, we'd really think about the, the present and the past and uh, everything that you've delivered us from. We'd meditate on it. We'd praise you for it specifically as David does here. Uh, we would consider every little thing, uh, God, that you've done in our life. Um, God, and we would give you the praise that you deserve. You alone are worthy to be praised, God. So we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.